0: It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some very interesting items on the agenda today, including something that all feels hauntingly familiar. Another Flying Squad member (laughs) sentencing matter. Help
1: set this up for us. Yes, indeed. So there have been a a lot of these prosecutions, right? These are uh, the Rainforest Flying Squad Uh, members uh, or uh, associated people um, who are being prosecuted uh, for uh, criminal contempt for blocking logging, essentially. Um, And uh, we've talked about some of these cases before, and there's been a whole uh, sort of uh, line of law developed around these things. Uh, And this particular case uh, was just decided uh, in December, and there are a few interesting things about it I thought uh, worthy of mention. Um, first of all, the lawyer on it is former counselor Isset, which is good to see. He's off doing good work. Oh, uh, yes, lawyer now it would seem. Um, and it was a sentencing of a person who uh, uh, pled guilty, acknowledged uh, that he had engaged in uh, criminal contempt, uh, and the activity was described uh, this way. He said his arm was chained inside a hole in a log, uh, and approximately twenty large nails were hammered into the wood around the hole to make it more difficult to cut through. And the person in the log uh, were positioned on the road where there was a rock face on one side and a steep drop on the other effectively blocking traffic uh, contrary to a uh, order uh, from uh, Justice uh, Verhoeven that they not be doing that. Um, and <clears throat> so this individual uh, acknowledged that he had done that. Uh, probably not a great big who uh, whodunit. Uh, and so as I mentioned, the law sort of developed in terms of what kind of sentence might be appropriate for that kind of behavior uh and here the individual uh, had uh was described by the judge as a man of good character uh he had no previous uh, criminal record uh he acknowledged what he had uh, what he had done um he was described a little it caused me a little bit of worry he was described as a law professor which Hmm. caused me a bit of concern about, uh, some law professors are in fact lawyers, some aren't, Hmm. uh, and if somebody's a a lawyer, that's kind of, that's not kind of, it is incompatible (laughs) with engaging in, uh, criminal contempt, right? That's just not going to, that's not a compatible kind of activity, Hmm. but looking at this person's background, it does not appear that he's a lawyer, and some law professors are not lawyers, right? He's doing Hmm. a, Looks like a PhD in law and philosophy, something like that. So, just so um, our
0: audience understands, when you're a lawyer, you're an officer of the court. You have duties that, of course, you must abide by. That even if you had full legal training, you might not otherwise have to
1: observe if you were just a member of the public. Absolutely right. Uh, sort of uh, lawyers aren't uh, would be it would be incompatible with your professional obligations to be off committing criminal contempt of court right you're sort of officer of the court you're member of the law society part of the role there is to uh, ensure that the rule of law prevails right which is Uh completely inconsistent uh, with uh, uh, engaging in criminal contempt to try and get what you want in a fashion you know to be uh, unlawful so that would be a particular concern but it doesn't arise here I suppose there there would be room to be cons- sort of uh, in terms of moral culpability mm-hmm. I suppose there would be an argument to be made that somebody who has legal training even if they're not a lawyer might have a higher degree of moral culpability when they engage in intentionally unlawful Conduct, Hmm. You know, as opposed, let's say there was a young, you know, let's say there was a 19-year-old who was just kind of uh, persuaded to come along and engage in a protest and didn't really have a a thorough understanding of all of the principles involved and how uh, engaging in uh, unlawful activity contrary to a court order might undermine uh, things like the rule of law that we all depend on to live in an orderly society. So there would be an argument about that. But there would be a particular concern if somebody was a practicing lawyer uh, who was breaching intentionally a court order. That's just not going to fly. The law society, I'm sure, would have a, a heart attack if that was uh, that was going on. Uh, and so that that issue didn't arise here because of this person's background. Hmm. But the 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 narrow issue is this: um, there had been there's been an, oh, so many of these cases now. It was agreed. Uh, that a a suitable sentence for somebody in the position of this man who had no record, good character, pled guilty, Um, the tariff for that appears to be a period of probation uh, along with 100 hours of community work service. That appears to be the tariff. Um, And so it was agreed uh, that that would ordinarily be the appropriate sentence for this man. But the interesting fact pattern here was that The man had uh, $1,605, must have kept his receipts, of camping gear Hmm. uh, in his possession at the time that he was arrested. Uh, And he said that he had left the camping gear in a ditch, uh, anticipating his arrest. But somehow, and it's unexplained, the camping gear wound up on the road. Uh, And so after he was arrested, I guess they cleared the log and the camping gear was repeatedly run over by a road grader <laughs> described by the judge. Sorry, I just had something I, in my throat there. My apologies. I guess once they hauled the log away, there they must have been some effort to smooth the road out so the logging could continue, and it repeatedly ran over the, the camping gear. Oh, dear. And so there's a Supreme Court of Canada case, um, Souter, from a few years ago, that says that judges are permitted to take into account collateral consequences that Hmm. might flow from um, somebody being uh, charged, for example. Hmm. Now, not all collateral consequences are going to uh, have an impact in terms of what sentence might be appropriate, and there isn't some rigid formula for it. And the court has also said that some consequences just flow so naturally from the fact of being charged, they're not going to have much of a A uh, mitigating uh, factor, like if somebody said, "Well, it was really traumatic to have handcuffs put on me and be put in a police car," you'd say, "Well, that just kind of flows with being arrested for something, right?" That's not going to always be a mitigating uh, factor, but the judge did say, "Look, uh, when somebody's being arrested, you you don't have an expectation that your property is going to be run over by a road grader," Uh, and so uh, the judge concluded that uh, that is the kind of collateral consequence that could have an impact on what sentence might be appropriate. Uh, And so the judge decided that rather than the 100 hours of community work service that might otherwise be appropriate in this this fact pattern, that that should be reduced to 70 hours of community work service, uh, along with a period of probation, uh, to take into account the loss of the $1,605 in camping gear. Uh, I haven't done the math on the uh, value per hour of the camping gear loss, but um, it's a notable case because it's an example of uh, how that kind of collateral consequence uh, can of an impact on what the appropriate sentence would be. Uh, so there we have it. looks like uh, former Councillor Ysset's doing uh, good legal work, uh, and uh, uh, the judge accepted uh, the submission about uh, the impact of the camping gear, and the net result is he'll have to do a few less community work service hours Uh, Also of interest, the judge uh, noted uh, that he looked forward to reading some of the research work (laughs) that this uh, uh, professor had been working on. So sounds like somebody who's otherwise of good character who uh, made the decision that he should go and commit criminal contempt uh, in order to try to, uh, I guess, get what he wanted in terms of the outcome here. So that's the latest from the Rainforest Flying Squad. Uh, And I must say, when I talk about the Rainforest Flying Squad, I've got young kids. There's a trampoline place in town with a similar name. (laughs) Flag squirrel, yeah. No connection. Flag squirrel. Nothing to do with the rainforest flying squad. They are completely separate. There are no trampolines involved uh, in in this particular case. Oh,
0: yeah. I wouldn't want to give anybody any ideas, though. But this is a really fascinating case. So essentially, it was $1,605 of camping gear somehow got repeatedly run over by a road grader. 30 hours of community service effectively reduced if we accept the 100 hours as our starting point. That's $53. Dollars and fifty three
1: cents each hour. So it's not that's, a, that's not bad. That's not bad. That's not bad for the the camping here And I must say. Uh, I was impressed with the $1,605. Somebody kept careful receipts.
0: <laughs> well, I, who knows? Maybe it was crowdfunded. I'm not sure. But if that was the case, that would actually explain <laughs> quite a bit. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very fascinating to look at this. You know, the sort of inexhaustible resourcefulness on every single part of every single issue is something that feels hauntingly familiar. I can't quite place it though. Um, what's next on our agenda?
1: Uh, next on the agenda is a, is a issue that uh, deals with, um, current thing which is going on which is the sending out of property assessments right Uh, anyone who owns properties likely received one this week or if they haven't they'll be getting one soon Uh, and the the impact of those property assessments is really uh, used in determining how much your municipal taxes are going to be and the way that works is that municipalities are able to set what are called mill rates uh, which are Uh, an amount, a number of dollars per, I think it's usually expressed in thousands of dollars of property value. Um, And that would determine how much property taxes you would owe. And so what would happen is the municipality would figure out, okay, this is going to be our budget for the year. And then they would translate that into these mill rates to determine how much taxes everyone would have to pay to come up to the level of whatever revenue it is they've decided they need for their budget. Uh, And When they do that, they're able to set actually different mill rates for different types of property, which is an interesting thing in and of itself. Like for example, they can set one mill rate for residential property and a completely different rate for business property, for example, of the same value. And so in Victoria, for example, the business rate is something like triple uh, the rate of what the same value of property owned for residential purposes would be. And it's not hard to imagine why that is. Uh, because businesses don't vote, right? And so it's much more politically palatable to say we'll have a high mill rate for business property and a rate that's like a third of that uh, for residential property because, again, some people vote and businesses don't get to vote. So that's the explanation for that. The other interesting thing about that system is that there are a number of types of property which are exempt from paying property tax at all. Uh, And there are some where a municipality can decide whether to grant an exemption. But there are other categories of property, and this is all from the community charter uh, in Section 220 of it, which are referred to as statutory exemptions, types of property where a municipality cannot levy any property tax. Um, And the effect of that, of course, is that if they can't tax property X, the taxes for all the other properties have to be higher to achieve whatever amount of money it is they determine that they need. And the list of exemptions—some of them make, I think, pretty good sense. For example, there's an exemption for property owned by the provincial government, so the city of Victoria couldn't raise all of its revenue by taxing the legislature <laughs> at some enormous rate or something, right? Yes. Other statutory <laughs> exemptions include things like uh, land used uh, as a like a uh, grave, graveyard, right? That makes sense. Pretty hard to extract money uh, from the residents. And, and then there's various other exemptions. One of the exemptions, uh, a couple of exemptions here that have been controversial. Um, one is that there's an exemption for private schools, um, land, that has been that was an issue in Oak Bay a few years ago. Hmm. But there's another exemption here, which I think uh, listeners should think carefully about, whether it's an appropriate one uh, to still have in 2023. Uh, and that's a mandatory exemption under section 220 sub H and what that does is it exempts from any municipal taxation uh, essentially things like churches and synagogues and any other uh, buildings and associated land used for worship Uh, and it includes land owned by religious organizations or leased by religious organizations or on their behalf by somebody like a trustee and the effect of that is that any of these properties held by these by religious organizations are not paying tax, municipal tax. Mm-hmm. And it means that everyone else's tax rate is higher. And the reason people should think carefully about whether that's appropriate, and there may be a, a legal issue about that, uh, is in Canada, we enjoy freedom of religion. Uh, and that has been interpreted to include uh, both a freedom to practice religion – but also a freedom not to be subject to religious requirements, right? And here, effectively what's happening is it's requiring everyone who's not a member of a church or religious organization to subsidize them because they don't pay municipal taxes. Um, And there's an early Supreme Court of Canada case which dealt with – Uh, that issue of freedom of religion called Big M Drug Bart, right? It's one of the early classic uh, uh, cases involving freedom of religion and what that means from a constitutional perspective. And that case involved an assessment of what's called the Lord's Day Act, which required businesses to all be closed on Sunday. Hmm. Uh, And so that was challenged. to say, well, hold on, uh, you know, that's not appropriate. Uh, The Big M Drug bart was getting fined, or opening on Sunday. Uh, And the argument was, hey, this is just sort of a state effort to uh, sort of uh, support religions that might have services on Sunday, which is, of course, a subset of them. Interesting. Um, And the Supreme Court of Canada found that that was unconstitutional, impermissible, and was struck down. And that's why businesses can be open on Sunday without getting fined. Hmm. Uh, And so with that background, I would just uh, urge listeners to think carefully about whether it's appropriate that we have a mandatory statutory exemption for property owned by religious uh, organizations. When the effect of that um, is that you're going to pay higher taxes in order to subsidize them. And just like somebody who might say, look, I I don't want to have to take the day off on Sunday. I wish to open my store, right? The person who says, look, you know, uh, I don't really want to provide a subsidy to religious organization X, Y, or any of them. Uh, But, uh, because of how that's set up and because of Section 220 of uh, of that act, uh, that's what's happening. And so you should think about that uh, when you get your property tax assessment and later your tax bill. Uh, one of the reasons why your tax bill is higher than what it would otherwise be is that we've granted uh, these uh, exemptions from paying tax, including that one. Which, to my mind, when you look at it, stands out as something quite distinct from something like, Provincially owned property or a hospital or a graveyard Um, and uh, effectively what you are being required to do whether you like it or not if you own property in a municipality uh, is subsidize uh, the uh, religious uh, organizations that are operating there. Um, and so I think there's a very live legal issue about whether that's constitutionally uh, permissible. Hmm. So that's it under the community charter and uh, mill rates and property taxes.
0: All right, let's take a quick break. Legally speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, continues right after this. Back on the air at CFAX 1070, Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, Barrister and Solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, one more story on our agenda for this week. The B.C. Court of Appeal reducing a sentence. Help us understand this.
1: Yes, indeed. This case is an interesting one, and it may have some impact on sentencing generally in the province for Indigenous people. And the case involves essentially the Court of Appeal interpreting a provision of the Criminal Code 718.2e, which says that a judge when sentencing should look for all available sanctions other than imprisonment that are reasonable uh, and consistent with harm done and so forth. And then says this with particular attention to the circumstances of Aboriginal offenders. And that is in the criminal code in response to the, massive overrepresentation of Indigenous people in prison, right? The percentage of people in prison we've talked about previously who are Indigenous is completely out of proportion to the percentage of the public who are Indigenous. Now, the Supreme Court of Canada a few years ago gave some meaning to that section I've just referred to, and there's a case called Gladue
0: yes. that
1: talks about that and has led to this concept of Gladue reports being routinely ordered which provides uh, judges with information about somebody's indigenous background uh, and those, the impact that might have had on the person and how it wound up, how they wound up committing an offence. Now, it becomes challenging when a judge is sentencing somebody for a very serious offence, right? So how the, that, those principles are to be applied. And this case involved a, a man who was uh, convicted of aggravated assault uh, and it was a very serious stabbing. He stabbed a, a victim twice in an unprovoked fashion, puncturing his lung, lacerating his liver, and he would have died but for surgery. And the man in question had a, a really unenviable background, including 33 prior convictions, six robbery offenses, four offenses of threatening, weapons offenses, numerous breaches, a terrible background. Um, and the uh, he was Métis. His mom was Métis. And there was a Gladue report prepared. The background, and it became clear that this man had a terrible, terrible childhood. There's just no way around that. Uh, Involving things like uh, his brother being stabbed to death, um, his uh, stepfather involved in all kinds of criminal activity, Uh, drugs uh, all kinds of things just terrible circumstances and when you look at the circumstances it's probably not surprising that you wound up uh, completely dysfunctional right I don't know what a way to describe it right Mm -hmm. Um, and the case with the crown submission at trial was look uh, on sentencing Uh, that this man didn't even realize he was Métis until relatively recently, Uh, and the stepfather, which was the source of this terrible childhood this man endured, is uh, not Indigenous. And the Crown's submission was, well, look, there should be really little consideration given to the fact that this man is Métis, uh, given that uh, his terrible upbringing was a function of his non-Indigenous stepfather, Uh, and he had very little connection to his Métis background at all. He didn't even realize he was Métis until recently. And the trial judge seemed to accept most of that and sentenced the man to a period of five years in prison. Um, The case then went to the Court of Appeal, uh, and the argument was, no, that's just too narrow an interpretation of what that section means and what Gladue stands for. Uh, And the Court of Appeal decision, which was a unanimous uh, decision of three justices, it was actually written by um, a justice who's himself Indigenous, uh, and so may have some uh, insight, uh, personal insight into these matters. Um, The judge concluded, the uh, justices in the Court of Appeal concluded uh, that the approach taken by the trial judge was an overly narrow one uh, and looked at, for example... Uh, the outcomes and circumstances of uh, Indigenous women uh, and how those uh, have been influenced by uh, the uh, Canada. The court speaks about it as Canada's colonial history of assimilation and how that played a a role ultimately in this man winding up in the courthouse uh, and found that um, even though the dysfunctional household, uh, which involved childhood abuse, anger, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, criminal activity, terrible, terrible circumstances. Yes. Um, even though those were caused by uh, this uh, stepfather who was um, not indigenous, uh, the court found that a broader interpretation is required. And the reason, uh, one of the reasons why uh, this man's mother wound up in that circumstance uh, would have been as a result of that, Background, Right. And as a, a function of um, the circumstances that many indigenous women find themselves uh, in, very unfortunately. Yes. Um, and so found that because of that, even though the background was caused by the stepfather, um, found that this man had a the court's language was significantly reduced level of moral blameworthiness. When you look at it in a broader way of how is it that this man wound up in this horrifically abusive childhood and then came out of it clearly as a broken person who's committing crimes and stabbing people and doing all kinds of other things uh, and found that because of that reduced level of moral blameworthiness, which could be connected to uh, his uh, mother's background, uh, it was appropriate to reduce the sentence from five years to four years. Uh, And so that's the outcome in the Court of Appeal. And that outcome with respect to him is that narrow five years to four years. But more broadly speaking, this is going to be some direction to trial judges in terms of how are you to assess things when you have somebody coming before you who is Indigenous, uh, but... It's hard to connect that directly with, well, how did that lead to this behavior? And the Court of Appeal has said, no, there should be a broader approach taken to that. And so that was the outcome here. And it's likely to have an outcome in cases in the future in B.C. And as I said, the hard cases are ones like this, where you're trying to do everything you can to not you know, have one more Indigenous person in prison but a judge is faced with sentencing somebody for a very serious offense. And those are the tough cases, and that's uh, that's the latest from the Court of Appeal. Michael Mulligan with
0: Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking during the second half of our second hour every Thursday on CFAX. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Have a great day. All right. You too. Take care.